Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. As we open this morning, I'm going to read from Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the warmth of your presence. We thank you, that, thank you for welcoming us into, uh, into your assembly once again today. Lord, prepare our hearts. Lord, draw us closer to you as we see the throngs gathering into your temple and into your meeting place. Lord, bless this next 45 minutes and let us learn a little bit more about you and have a little bit more wonder as we consider you afterwards. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you got your insert on the way in, you know we are on Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 31. Of synods and councils. There is no more Presbyterian chapter in the Westminster Confession than this one. Uh, but let's be honest, there is also no, there is nothing more boring than this title. The title of this chapter is basically Meetings. All about meetings. That's what we're talking about today. It's dreary. All our sleep patterns are disrupted by the time change last night. So when you've drawn the short end of the stick and you have to teach on synods and councils in Sunday school, there's only one thing to do. We're going to start with the Monty Python skit this morning. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, pray silence for the chairman of the Royal Society for putting things on top of other things. I thank you, ladies and gentlemen. The year has been a good one for the society. This year, our members have put more things on top of other things than ever before. But I should warn you, this is no time for complacency. No, there are still many things, and I cannot emphasize this too strongly, not on top of other things. I myself, on my way here this morning, saw a thing that was not on top of another thing in any way. Shame, Shame indeed. But we must not allow ourselves to become too despondent. We must never forget that if, it was, if there was not one thing that was not on top of another thing, our society would be nothing more than a meaningless, meaningless body of men that had gathered together for no good purpose. But we flourish. This year, our Australasian members and the various organizations affiliated to our Australasian branches put no fewer than 22 things on top of other things. Well done, all of you. But there is one cloud on the horizon. In this last year, our Staffordshire branch has not succeeded in putting one thing on top of another. 
Therefore, I call upon our Staffordshire delegate to explain this weird behavior. Uh, Cutler, Staffordshire, um, well, Mr. Chairman, it's just that most of the members of Staffordshire feel the whole thing's a bit silly. No! No! <laughs> silly? Silly? Silly. I suppose it is a bit. What have we been doing wasting our lives with all this nonsense? Right. Okay. We need adjourned forever. That, that is every meeting at Presbytery. <laughs> You've now experienced it. <laughs> no, actually, thankfully, it's only occasionally like that. As we think about synods and councils, it's easy for our minds as Presbyterians to run on to thinking about parliamentary procedure and processes and motions and, and, motions and adjournment and big, fancy, and big fancy words and complication. There's good reasons for all those things. But what we're going to do for the next few minutes this morning is kind of step back and think, why do we have all these meetings in this, this and sister churches with us? Before we turn to consider the confession here in chapter 31, I'd like you to think, I'd like you to think about some of the other creeds and confessions that, are, that our church in particular and our Presbyterian in general uh, adhere to. We're going to be, uh, we frequently read the Apostles' Creed, uh, Apostles' Creed in the mornings during morning worship. Um, it's one of the oldest creeds of the church. And it's one, it's probably one we know the least about. It's likely, it was uh, probably a, a light, originally developed in Gaul and based on an even older creed developed by, around the second century, an older creed called the Old Roman Creed, which itself was in turn based on the Great Commission. The name comes from an early belief and tradition that it was written by the 12 apostles themselves, each of them contributing a stanza to the finished piece. We don't believe this is the case, but it's very likely that it was written by those who learned directly from the apostles. And then one of the creeds that we don't read a whole lot, because frankly it's a real jawcracker to say, is the Athanasian Creed. That name should be familiar. Uh, Athanasius, the great, uh, the great defender of the faith in the, early, in the early centuries of the church. It bears his name and summarizes his Trinitarian teachings very well, though it was probably not writ originally written by Athanasius. It's, one of the, it's another of the oldest creeds of the church, probably preceding you know, the, the current form of the Apostles' Creed and being developed in the 5th or 6th century. And what it paved the way for was uh, it paved the way for the Nicene Creed, which we also, is also a regular part of our liturgy in morning worship. Now here's where it gets interesting. We don't know a lot about those first two, but we do know a lot about the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., it included, included almost 2,000 bishops of the church, and it was summoned by the Emperor Constantine I. It was that Constantine, that Constantine, Constantine the Great, as he's been known to history, who moved the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome in Italy to Byzantium in eastern Turkey. Byzantium, or he renamed it Constantinople. We've talked about that city. We've talked about the end of that great city uh, in a previous series on historical figures. Constantine summoned the Council of Nicaea um, to resolve the Arian controversy. Arius was teaching at the time that Jesus is the Son of God, but that he was begotten by the Father in time. He was not co-eternal with the Father. In other words, Arius was teaching that Jesus Christ was, create, was a created being, more powerful, more special than you or I, but ultimately part of the creation, just like we are. 
the Nicene Creed, uh, the Nicene Creed addressed this controversy directly, and um, it has now it is and it, and it was further revised and expanded at the Council of Constantinople um, about sixty years later. Sixty years later, in three eighty one, which in, which itself was summoned by the Emperor Theodosius to draw the empire back to what we now know today as Nicene Christianity. This is a nice. We are in a Nicene Church today. Most Protestant churches are. Most Roman Catholic churches are. Most are, you know, what we understand, the, the clear statements that we've been handed down from our forebearers on the Trinity, on the nature of the Godhead, on the person of the Lord Jesus, these things were all hammered out and established during this period of church history. In, a fa- in, in one of what we call the early ecumenical councils of the church. Similar council was the Chalcedonian Creed, developed at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. This one was convened by the Emperor Martian, and it was written to address the teachings of Eutyches and Nestorius, who taught that Christ's divine and human natures were distinct. All four of these were all four of these are um, all four of these are constitutional documents of Evangel Presbytery as well. You can read them on the website if you've never actually read them. There's uh, some are familiar, some are not. All of them are provide strong foundations uh, for the church. More recently, uh, in the years leading up to the Westminster Confession, we could talk about the Scotch Confession which was commissioned by the Scottish Parliament August 1560. The Parliament appointed John Knox as a superintendent of the body. Um, The writers, there were six of them, and they came to be known as the Six Johns for the very good reason that they were all named John. It's a very popular name in the history of the church. And the document was a foundation of Scottish Presbyterianism and a precursor of the Westminster Confession as we consider it today. And, of course, we could spend a lot of time talking about we've referenced, and we really do need to spend more time on the historical context of the confession itself. You know, as has been mentioned before, just a few short years after the confession was drafted and completed, England was in civil war. So in, and you could look back at many of these other, many of these other creeds and confessions the church has developed and see similar conflict, if not outright violence, that were surrounding them. It is, it's interesting that many of the documents that we respect for such clarity and direction came out of times of great confusion and uncertainty. The Lord has often been pleased to work in the midst of that. So with that, let's read section 1 of chapter 31 of Synods and Councils. For the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods and councils. And it belongs to the overseers and other, rule, and other rulers of the particular churches by virtue of their office and the power which Christ hath given them for edification and not for destruction to appoint such assemblies and to convene together in them as often as they shall judge it expedient for the good of the church. If you look at the scripture references below uh, this article and indeed throughout this chapter, you will see um, you'll see it's primarily based on Acts chapter 15, description of what, what is probably the earliest council of the church, the Council of Jerusalem. In this chapter, Christ's church expands. In this, in, this, in this chapter of the Bible, we see Christ's church expand from a national church, as it had existed in the nation of Israel up to that point, to a global church. All of a sudden, the apostles and the elders of that day had to come together to resolve a dispute and contention that was going on not within their own, not within the city of Jerusalem any longer, but now they were looking outward. And the churches were looking, and the churches were coming together to provide guidance and direction. Difficult time. It was much the same thing that happened with the Westminster Confession. 
as part of the, the new relationship between the nation of England and the nation of Scotland against the Stuart monarchs, and between the Church of England and the Church of Sto Scotland, was developed a document known as the Psalm League and Covenant, which laid out both a political alliance as well as an ecclesiastical alliance between the two countries and their respective churches. And one of the requirements the Scotch had for supporting the English in their resistance to the Stuart monarchs was, a reformation, was further reformation of the Church of England. And so the Parliament looked around, scratched their heads, and said, well, we have no idea how to do that. So let's get, the best mind, let's get the best minds in the church together from both England and Scotland, and let's ask them to work on that. And so the original commission of the Westminster Assembly was to simply take the 39 articles, the existing statement of faith of the Anglican Church, and revise them. What you have in your hand looks very little like the 39 articles. The, uh, the assembly got kind of excited and went far, and far exceed, it's what we call scope creep in, uh, in modern business parlance. Uh, there was a lot of scope creep, and so they ended up creating something completely new. But it didn't exist in a vacuum. It drew from many other things, including the confessions and creeds that we've looked at already. Now, this is one of the most. Now, this section that we're looking at in front of you is significant because a lot. Um, this is this includes some of the most significant revisions made to the Westminster Confession when it came to the United States. I'm going to read to you the 1646 original. I'm going to read the first two articles, and you can compare them to what you have in front of you. So the original confession, chapter 31, article 1, reads, For the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils. Article 2 reads, As magistrates may lawfully call a synod of ministers and other fit persons to consult with, to consult and advise with about matters of religion, so if magistrates be open enemies to the church, the ministers of Christ, of themselves by virtue of their office, or they with other fit persons upon delegation from their churches may meet together in such assemblies. If your eye scans ahead to Article 2 in front of you, it sounds nothing like Article 2 that I just read. Now, listening to that article, you can hear, you can hear the controversy, you can hear the political context, you can hear every, the societal uncertainty that's going on that's surrounding them, and they're trying to address that head on. They've literally been here because the, you know, a body, the body of legislators asked them to be here. That's why all these pastors and elders are together. They're also very aware of the fact that their, their political cause, their side in the war, if you will, could lose. In which case, they would have a very hostile, they would then, if the king reestablishes authority, they'd have a very hostile monarch on the throne to the reformation of the church. So they're, in that statement, they're trying to cover, they're trying to prepare for both sides. On the one hand, saying, we really appreciate Parliament bringing us here, and on the other side, even if they're not, we can still do this. We still have to reform the church one way or the other. So that's what was, came out and was ultimately approved in uh, the 1640s. Now, the revision that we have in front of us was made here in the United States, and there were, there were a series of revisions beginning uh, as far back as 1789 uh, with the Presbyterian Church USA as it was called at the time. It was a very different body than what we know as the PCUSA today, unfortunately, but that's a, whole, that's a story for another day. But beginning, the, uh, beginning around then and then continuing all the way up until um, the formation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 1936 and then the formation of the PCA in 1975, um, a few other minor changes were added. So what we're reading today was one of the earliest and one of the most extensive because they looked at this whole thing about magistrates calling synods, assemblies, presbyteries, and said... I don't know about that. And we've, talked, we've mentioned this before, particularly in the chapter, on, chapter 23 on the civil magistrate. 
there was great concern. Uh, there was great concern here in, the, in Presbyterians of the United States that we avoid old world Erastianism, the belief that the church was under the state. The church was a spiritual arm of the state, which is something they've been taught and practiced uh, throughout Europe and was a con- and indeed had been a theme of church and state relations all the way since Constantine and his calling of the Council of Nicaea. So, it, so, what they ulti- so what the American Presbyterian churches ultimately did was to drop Article 2 entirely and take the total number of articles in this chapter from five down to four. So one remained, um, so one remained, but then they added to it. They dropped two and renumbered the others, uh, the, renamed the others two through four to bring it up. Clear as mud? Oh, yeah, everybody's got it. This, hey, I warned you, this is the synods and councils chapter, so this gets complicated. Now, on a personal note, I do have some sympathies with the original language. It's very understandable. It's very understandable why the Westminster divines in assembly, they were trying, they had pastor's hearts. They were trying to speak and give direction to the church as in her current struggles at the time. Um, there, are, there are still a few small denominations, some of which I, one of which I used to be a member of, that keep the 1646 original. They have this language. They call the Pope the Antichrist. They have a law, they have prohibition on consanguinity, which none of us even know what that means anymore, but it's in the original. Um, there are still a few of those. But what we use, uh, but what we use, uh, it was intentionally to shift the focus away from councils and assemblies, uh, councils and assemblies of that kind, and to make this an overt statement of Presbyterian government. That's really what the changes uh, were intended to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, praise God, that's why we're, you know, that's why we're all, I mean, that is literally on our name out front, and it's great to have that right at the heart of our confession, as it is here, which is what, uh, which is what is laid out in section one. Now, it's almost, it's also a little bit sad that a mechanism for cross-denominational cooperation is downplayed, and the original sense of, the original broader sense of council's assemblies has kind of been refocused in a very, the Presbyterian conception of it. We're gonna talk, I'm gonna revisit this here at the end again. Just something to think about. Something was, something was gained, something was lost with this revision. Now, as I mentioned, this is largely based on Acts chapter 15 and the description of the Jerusalem Council in the first 35 verses of that. Let me read from that section because it's gonna, a lot of what we're gonna talk about afterwards is gonna come from it. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren at Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same by word, things by word of mouth. For it's, listen, to this, listen to this line very closely. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. 
farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. So that is the, um, that's from uh, verse 22 and 32 from chapter 15. And it kind, of cuts over all, it kind of cuts over all the debate, the dissension, the dispute within the Jerusalem Council and gives you the end result. And it's amazing to consider the end result, the way they word it. Uh, we'll see more of this later, but just in this very line, they speak, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And the order is very important. When they came together, they were seeking the will of the Spirit for God's church. And they were seeking it together. It wasn't that, it wasn't the Apostle Peter, uh, it wasn't that they, everyone came to Apostle Peter, sat behind his big desk in his fancy robes, and they said, Peter, we got a problem here. And they laid it out, and Peter thought and prayed and, said, and made, you know, made a declaration and resolved it. It wasn't, that they, uh, it wasn't that they dismissed the concern and said, well, that's your church's problem, go figure that out. Instead, they brought together elders and brethren from a lot of different churches and came together and said, let's seek the Holy Spirit's will together. And if, if you look at Acts chapter 15, which I should have pulled up, it's a rich passage for meditation. In chapter 6, it says, The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, and so on and so on, and then James, and then James comes in, and Barnabas and Paul have already spoken. And I love that line right there, after there had been much debate. When you hear that line, you should think of that skit that we just did. Um, because at, when you get thick into the debate on the floor of presbytery, in a session meeting, in a journal assembly, in whatever body of the church you're debating, it gets messy. It gets crazy, and at a certain point, and at some points you wonder, which way is up right now? And there are times when you, times when you feel like you feel like you do, you know, we all laugh and chuckle about this, you know, this body of men, you know, pointlessly, pointlessly putting things on top of other things. And sometimes it feels like our own processes and systems and commitments are in the way of actual consensus and progress sometimes. It can be very, very difficult. Sometimes you just want to sweep it all away and say, you know what, give us a dictator, give us a king to run, rule over us in the church, somebody who can just speak and we all do what he says, because that would be so much easier sometimes but it's not the pattern we're given in Scripture. The pattern we're given in Scripture is assemblies of representatives of the people coming before God to seek His face. So in, chapter two, so in Article 2 of Chapter 31, we talk a little bit about what those assembl- the business of what those assemblies should be doing. Article 2 says it belongs to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience, to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of his church, to receive complaints in cases of maladministration, and authoritatively to determine the same, which decrees and determinations, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power whereby they are made, as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto, in his word. Very important point to be made here. The authority doesn't come just because you get a bunch of guys in a room. Authority doesn't come because there's consensus or majority or because they have fancy rules and big words and, uh, and complicated procedures that go in here. None of these things grant authority. 
The authority of the church is spiritual, and it proceeds from God. And for that reason, if you remember nothing else, here's, here's the word to remember. The authority of the church is administrative in nature. Now, what do I mean by that? It means that nothing we have is our own. Everything that, I, you know, everything that an elder, a pastor, uh, everything that a, presbyter- a session or assembly has, they have no intrinsic power themselves. It's not like, uh, it's not like we kind of, I think I've said it before, it's not, like any, it's not like any elder or deacon or pastor or group together, it's not like we get superpowers when we're given and anything on ourselves. All the authority is in God. Uh, everything is under in the submission of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word and it's spoken to us through his word. That is what we have. So when assemblies come together, it is never to decide, well, we think this is the best idea on how to proceed. It is always what saith the Lord in everything we do. The church has no power of its own, but it's called the steward, the power of God entrusted to it. So take, a look, take another look at art, the article in front of you. And you can see there, there's many specific responsibilities given to councils and assemblies. To determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience. We can see this in the beginning of Acts 15, where it says, Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Debate breaks out on the church. Um, it's coming from a source known as, that we, know, we call today the Judaizers, which meant that this gospel is all well and good. We're really excited about Jesus, but it's not enough. You need Jesus plus the Old Testament law and customs. You need obedience to that, in addition to Christ, to actually be saved. They were, they were, a fir- they were, er- they were first century legalists within the church. And the dispute and the dispute raged throughout the churches of Asia Minor until it got to the point where, where the elders looked around and said, Paul, Barnabas, you guys have been at the front lines of this thing. We appreciate your work. It's time to take it up to the next level. Time to, go, time to send you back to Jerusalem to consult with the, other, the leaders of the other churches. It says that assemblies may set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God. And we see this in the letter that we read just a few minutes ago from the church. And if you move over to chapter 16, beginning in verse 4, it says, When Paul and Barnabas re- returned to their churches, now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. And the observe here doesn't mean they were just going to look at what the presbytery decided. It's to observe. It's actually follow to do uh, the direction that had been laid down. To receive complaints in cases of maladministration and authoritatively determine, uh, determine the same. And this takes me back to a previous meeting, which I don't think would have come quite to the same level as the Jerusalem Council. But in Acts chapter 6, there was, a, there was a problem of maladministration in the church. If you remember in Acts chapter 4, we've been reading about thousands and thousands of people coming into the fledgling Christian church. And everything's happy. Everything's great. They're sharing everything in common with one another. You know, it's just prosperity and joy you know, everywhere. And then you get to chapter 6, and everybody's not so happy anymore. Because now the Hellenistic Jews are coming to church and saying, hang on, our, widow, our widows are being passed over in favor of others during, uh, in the care and the, you know, the distribution in the church. We need a res- resolution on this. And the result, uh, the result of that was the creation of the diaconate, 
and the uh, diaconal ministry within the church. But the thing to note is when this maladministration happens, when it's happening on a broad level, or when a, individual churches cannot resolve it, then it comes up, then it can be risen up to the level of the assembly, the council, the presbytery specifically in our context. And then finally, this is, and this is the most chilling portion of all, which decrees and determinations, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission? Now, it would be one thing if we just got a group of men together and said, you all work through this issue and come back and let us know what you think, okay? And then, you know, they'd get together, they'd debate, they'd, you know, hold a meeting, and at the end of it, they'd have recommendations. And everybody could look at them and say, yeah, that's great, or meh, and toss it over their shoulder. No, there's a little more force here. There's a little more force. Acts 15, 28 says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. And they actually claim the name of the Holy Spirit in the proclamation that they give. And again, we see that in Acts 16. As the words disseminated, it's laid down not as suggestions or recommendations or insights or, hey, you know, think about this. It's saying, thus saith the Lord, this is what you're to do. And it's very interesting. It's very interesting that closing words of Article 2, for it says, not only for their agreement with the word, that would make sense. Obviously, any proclamation should be obeyed insofar as it, obey, it agrees with the word. But also for the power whereby they are made, as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. So it's not just that the decrees of the assemblies of the church are applications of the word, although they are. They must be. And we're going to talk about that in the next article. But the means of developing them is also ordained in the word. Does that make sense? There's two things in force here. The assembly comes together to take the word of God and to apply it to a particular, a particular contention within the church. And the means by which they do it are ordained by God. And they need to be respected. And so the, so the decrees of presbytery need to be respected for both reasons. Not only because of the application of the word, but because the word ordains that his church should be governed in the assembly and council like this. Make sense? Article 3, how are we doing on time? Oh, we're fine. <laughs> this one's going to sound pretty obvious, and uh, it's probably something we all need to hear after that last one. All synods or councils, since the apostles' times, whether general or particular, may err. They may be wrong. And many have erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. And the, uh, the Westminster Assembly loved that term, the rule of faith. There's only one rule of faith, and what is it? The Word of God. Very basic question here, folks, so don't overthink this one. The Word of God is the ultimate rule and authority, and everything revolves around our work in, a, in understanding and applying the Word. And so reading this chapter, I think the, the best reaction I can say is, obviously, duh, I mean, we can't, uh, we do not lay, we do not lay supreme authority in any councils. Because remember, authority is administrative. It's stewardship. It's not, uh, it's not origin, it's not intrinsic to the body itself. It's, uh, the authority of the church is limited to declaring and implementing the word. There is nothing creative. There's nothing truly new coming out of the church. It's only administrative. I want to go back to that word that we've talked about, ecumenical. What does ecumenical mean? 
What do you think of when you say that? That's what we think of it today. I think the original, uh, the way it was originally considered was just simply a bunch of churches, a bunch of churches getting together. Because in the early ecumenical councils, there, was, there were no denominations. There was just the church. And you know, one of the things you'll study is that these, these glorious confessions and creeds that we read, it's not like they were laid out there and all the people, it's not like Arius read you know, the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed, it's like, oh, ha, I've been teaching heresy. I'm so sorry, brothers, forgive me. I mean, we wish that was the case. One of the reasons that the, uh, one of the reasons that later councils had to be, um, one of the reasons that later councils had to be summoned was Arianism remained and still had to be dealt with. And it was, and it was really, they didn't call them denominations at the time, but a lot of, you know, a lot of different branches of the church came out of the ecumenical councils. And so you look at them and you see, you see clarity, but you also see division and distinctions made through these things. So sometime around the, so, well, I've been going on for a while, but let's say, you know, let's say for the sake of it, sometime around the middle of the last century, what we know today is the ecumenical movement began. And it was a movement to bring, like you were saying, um, like you were saying, brother, to bring together churches, very, very different churches, to start crossing denominational lines. And, you know, let's take that at face value. That's a beautiful thing. There's nothing about denominations in the New Testament. It is a result of poor fallen world, and we long for the day when we can go to heaven and just be God's people all together. However, there was, a, and there was a lot, so there were a lot of good intentions with the ecumenical movement. They kind of looked at these divisions and say, you know what, guys, let's not focus on what makes us different. Let's focus on makes, what makes us the same. Again, not a bad statement, except for the fact that what they meant by that. They meant by that, let's, let's not argue doctrine, let's not argue the teachings of Scripture, because that, look, you know, we can, we've done that before. It just, may, it just splinters things into smaller groupings. Let's focus on Christian experience. I'm, I'm squashing a lot of detail and nuance here to, get to try to get something simple. And so the idea was, basically, you, you claim to be a Christian, you claim to be a Christian, you claim to be a Christian, great. Let's all come together and sing some hymns and see how we can cooperate together. Cooperation together is a part is fine, but what you would what would, what even what we you know but faithful Christians began to notice the only thing you couldn't ever question was what it actually means to be a Christian. Does that make sense? There was actually no discussion about what the foundations of being a Christian were in the ecumenical movement as it came out in the 40s, the 50s, 60s, and you know heading into in the 20th century. All there was is saying, like, there is this thing called being a Christian, and I experienced it this way, and you over there, it meant this sort of thing to you, and, you know, that's enough. We're just going to believe everybody, take each other's word, and uh, come together and talk about that. Just place my notes. But again, the one constant that we see in both the Jerusalem Council and the early ecumenical church council of the church was that the, the thing is to be not, it's not about people with various traditions coming together to find common ground. There's a place for that, but it has to be subservient to the more important thing. God's children have to come together to seek his will. It's not what the church thinks, but what God has said. 
And this should, be partic- this should weigh particularly heavy on us this morning because we're here in this tiny little, you know, this tiny little Presbyterian denomination in this tiny little Presbyterian church. Most people, when they think Presbyterianism, they don't think of us. They don't even think of the PCA as big as it is or the OPC or the larger Reformed Presbyterian denominations. They think of the PCUSA, which still remains one of the largest Protestant denominations here in this world. And you know what? The, Presby- the PCUSA, they have sessions, and they have presbyteries, and they have a general assembly, and they have all these things that we love as, you know, as good Presbyterians. And what they do in these things is they come together, and they give some lip service to this, the very same confession we're still reading, and they, they make the same prayers for guidance from the Holy Spirit, and then they pay no attention to what God has said and just come up with their own ideas. That's why, that's why they have women in the pulpits. That's why they have ordained homosexuals teaching. That's why they opened up abortion, because they said, we don't care what God thinks anymore. That's too painful. It's too divisive. Let's, uh, let's look at the times we live in and, and decide how to adapt. And denomination after denomination has done the same thing. Because what you'll find is not just Presbyterianism. You know, churches of all kinds have found the need, have found, you know, unless they're really crunchy, isolationist churches who just want to do their own thing and pay no attention to anyone else. Most people don't want to do that. Most people want to try to work together for consensus. It's just built into who we are as, as men and women, but also as Christians. We don't really want to be on our own. There are such divisive people, but they're few and far between, and they're easily missed because they're all by themselves. But most people want to come together. The question is, what will we do when we come together? And most of, and most of the church today has come together to rebel against God and do what comes easy in the church. Article 4 says, Synod and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience, if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. Again, there's a lot that could be said here, uh, but this is, this is just a nice, concise statement of sphere sovereignty. This is basically saying the church has its responsibilities, the state has its, and the two of them need to stay in their lanes where the Lord has placed them. But this is also in recognition of the fact at the time that uh, you know, one of the other political realities that the Westminster divines were thinking of was papal interference in European politics. It was going on all the time. The popes, the popes of a very early date, they wanted to be kingmakers. They wanted to be the king, the king over all the other kings in many ways. And so the, so the writers of this, even though, you know, even, though we end up revi- even though the American church ended up revising some of the earlier statements about the close relationship between church and state that made them uncomfortable, the divines still recognize these are two separate things. And so we don't want the church coming together and saying, the state, do this, because, uh, because that's not what the Lord had called. And we have that desire. That desire has been there. We, we want to legislate from the pulpit. We've got to, be, we've got to resist that. Because if we do so, then we subjugate the word of God to prevailing political opinion. We think about whatever, we, you know, whatever we've read in the news, whatever our commentators have said, or our favorite conservative podcast, we want to make that the thing that the church needs to be preoccupied with. And the church needs to be preoccupied with the priorities that God has given. And let that work, and let that, and let that work its way out as he intends. It's important to remember, though, 
that the separation of church and state is not the same thing as denying Christ's authority over the nations. Christ rules in both. Pastors and civil leaders are both considered ministers of God. And adherence to or rebellion against the true faith unifies the concerns of each. And so, the, so recognizing that, after making a clear statement on the separation of church and state and the, sphere, the sovereignty given to each sphere, there's also recognition that there will be time for even church and state to come together to work on particular things. The magistrate may summon the church for advice and for counsel. This hasn't happened much recently. Frankly, I wouldn't even want our political leaders calling the church together at this time. It would be a mess. Maybe. I mean, it was messy before, and the Lord brought good things out of it. But, I mean, as, in my own wisdom, if we had, oh boy, if we had Andrew Dion and Rick Warren and Joel Osteen in the same room, it would just explode. It would be a mess. Um, but it has happened. It has happened. I was reading... I was reading G.I. Williamson's excellent commentary on the Confession earlier today, and he, was actually, he actually testified before the Parliament of New Zealand had appeared before he wrote the book on some matters that they sought, they sought the advice of the church on. J. Gresham Machen very famously testified before a joint session of Congress on the establishment of the Department of Education, of public education, in the 1920s. Um, there, of course, we have the, the example of the assembly itself brought together by Parliament. There are times for this. There are also times when the church must humbly but boldly go before the church and, and petition, say, we have a grave concern. And in cases extraordinary, as, as the confession puts it, what does cases extraordinary mean? There's a lot of debate on that. We do not have time, um, but there are places for that. I think abortion and biblical sexuality are probably clear issues today. One, because they directly affect the church, and number two, because they strike at the nature of God's reality that's been established. So we have responsibility there. So as we close, I want to read, I want to read one passage. That, um, I hope you're not too discouraged this morning. I've tried to give you, you know, beginning from the crazy skit this morning to some of the, both the successes and the failures of, of uh, councils and assemblies throughout history. We, take, we take, try to take a sober look at the government of the church. It is not easy. I can't tell you how many times I've wished that God had just sent us a handful of angels. We don't need many. Like six would be enough. Give us some angels who are perfect and unfallen and just have them tell us what to do, Lord. Can't we just do that? That would be so much easier. But that's in his providence, that's not what he's done. He's given poor fallen men the responsibility of shepherding his church. And as we consider that, I want to read to you from a, a brief sermon uh, that Ian Murray, uh, Ian Murray shared at the conclusion of his book, Evangelicalism Divided. And it's, based on a, and it's based on a passage of Scripture from 1 Kings, where Solomon is building the first temple. And there's this one little line in there where it says that the, uh, the temple is to be assembled from, um, from limestone blocks. But the limestone is to be prepared in such a way that no hammer or chisel is ever seen near the site of the temple, and no, no hammering is ever heard uh, where it is. I want to read a brief sermon on not a brief sermon. I want to read a brief excerpt from a sermon on that. At almost all times in history, the kingdom of God has appeared to be in confusion to the outward eye. I hope you've gotten a sense of that. It is faith in the promises of God which provides a different perspective. The Holy Spirit assures us that infinite wisdom and love are, present, are presently directing the life of the church. 
and that eternity will be witness to their success when a multitude, which no man can number, will be glorified with Christ. What we see now is but the beginning. Let me stop right there and just comment on that. We, our perspective is so myopic. We can see, we cannot even see past the end of our own noses, certainly not to what the Lord is actually working towards. Words on the church by the Swiss pastor Felix Neff remain as true and beautiful as when he preached them in 1826. He likened the living stones which make up the church of Christ to the stones which were brought into Solomon's temple, but they were only placed there after they had been duly cut and prepared. And he quotes from 1 Kings 6-7, the temple when it was being built was built with stone finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple when it was being built. In Jerusalem, all had to be perfect. And then he quotes from Pastor Neff here at length. Listen to this. This was so encouraging to me when I read it. But surely, Pastor Neff says, it was not so in the marble quarries or in Lebanon where the cedars were cut or in the glowing furnaces between Succoth and Zarthan where they melted brass for the sacred vessels. Thus, in heaven, this majestic sanctuary is erected without noise, without labor. Every material is brought thither pure and perfect. The bride of the Lamb has neither spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing. But in this impure and dark world, this obscure quarry, whence the great builder is pleased to take some stones for his edifice, what shall we find but work yards for a season, where everything appears to be in movement and disorder? What unshapen stones, what rubbish, what fragments, how many things fit only for temporary service, how many arrangements merely provisional, how many mercenaries and foreigners are occupied in these quarries, just as the servants of Hiram were, and who, like them, will never enter the sanctuary? How many dissensions among the laborers, how many conjectures and disputes about the final purpose of the great architect and the several parts of the plan which are known only to himself? Shall we search in this chaos for the true church, the spiritual temple? Shall we endeavor to arrange in one exact and uniform order all those stones that we find in the various quarries opened in a thousand places in the world? Oh, how much wiser is the master. While some are disputing about the excellence of this or the other department of the work, and while others are spending their strength in endeavoring to introduce perfect order, the wise master builder surveys in silence the vast scene of operations, chooses and marks the materials which he sees to be prepared amidst all this confusion and causes them to be removed and placed in his heavenly edifice, assigning to every piece the place most proper for it, and for which he has designed it. Such, my beloved brethren, is the sublime idea which we ought to form of this universal church. Oh, how contemptible now will appear in our eyes those endless disputes which have at all times divided the believers, and continue to do so to the present day. Let us rather labor in the quarry where our work is assigned." to prepare as great a quantity of material as possible. And especially, let us entreat the Lord to make us all lively stones fit for his building. Amen. So when you think about the councils and assemblies of the church, indeed, when you think about any aspect of church life or worship or ministry, we are in the stone quarries. And the work is hard, and we are sweaty, and the sun's beating down on us, and everyone's tempers are short. But the work is great, and the object is as assured as assured as the existence of the one who's guiding it all. And so that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about work in the quarry of this dark world, the preparation for the great temple of living stone that's being built. Do I have a, mo- do I have a motion to adjourn? All in favor say, hear, hear. <laughs> Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the reminder that life, that as we see life as messy, we are assured, even from your word, that you intended that way. You intended that way to, to remind us, even this morning, what we cannot do anything right through our own efforts. No matter how hard we try, how much we plan or prepare, how much we think we have it all figured out, Lord, our plans will fall to nothing at our feet if they are merely our plans. And it doesn't matter how many smart minds we get into the same room or how many pious people are all think working towards the same end. If we are not seeking your will, then the will that we then the buildings we build will crumble before us. So Lord, we humbly commit ourselves, our church, the our uh, the fellowship of churches together to you and pray that you would send your spirit to guide us, to give us a love for your word and to seek to apply it and live by it in our lives. And we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.